Our first reading this evening is taken from uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, and it is the first six verses. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will there be any missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Verses 11 to 20. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Third reading today is found in the book of Luke. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is, to, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There is written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insult at him, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. But above all, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that is able to give us understanding and enable us to walk in your ways. So, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts may be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As has been mentioned already, this Sunday in the church calendar is the last one in the liturgical year. The yearly cycle starts again next Sunday with the season of Advent, when we remember both his first coming and anticipate his coming again. But this Sunday, in, as in recent times, has come to be linked with the reign of Christ and is sometimes referred to as Christ the King Sunday. You probably noticed the theme of king and the supremacy of Christ in our three readings, and that's not a coincidence. The regulars here at Christ Church will know that the theme of the kingdom and Jesus' teaching about the kingdom is a central aspect of what David and Aaron and others teach here week by week. So rather than cover these more familiar aspects of Jesus' teaching, and the parables about the kingdom, I thought I'd take a sidestep and talk about the character of our king. In particular, the prophetic origins of the, this divine king and the contrast in Jesus' time between the widespread expectations most people had of this king's rule and what Jesus actually was like and what he did. Though I will refer to the lectionary readings, we will need to spread the net wider and include a number of other passages to get a more complete picture of this divine king. And we will do our best to put up on the screen these extra Bible readings as we come to them, because that's usually helpful. During his public ministry, Jesus was addressed and referred to in a variety of ways. For example, Lamb of God, Rabbi, Teacher, 
Elijah, the prophet, Christ, Messiah, son of David, son of God, son of the blessed one, king of Israel, king of the Jews. Now we know that Christ and Messiah are essentially the same thing, meaning anointed one. But in the scriptures, there were the priests are also recorded as being anointed and sometimes prophets as well. But in popular understanding, the essence of God's anointed always pointed to a ruler, a king. What is striking is that Jesus rarely used any of these terms to refer to himself. It's not that he rejected them. It's that he never openly used them because of the associations and expectations of his hearers. The downtrodden multitudes of those days were hoping for a mighty deliverer that would rescue them from the oppression of the Romans. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, sums up these hopes when he prophesies about what God would begin to do through his son, John. He, he said this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Many, like Zechariah, were willing to wait for God to intervene. But a significant minority, in particular the zealots, were ready to help God make this deliverance come about by taking matters into their own hands. Sentiments of revolt and rebellion were simmering just under the surface. So Jesus had to be careful in his choice of words so as not to stoke these flames. One way he did this was by referring to himself with the phrase, son of man. This occurs over a hundred times in the Hebrew scriptures and carries the sense of an ordinary man, a mere mortal. But on one occasion, one key occasion in Daniel chapter seven, the phrase is associated with someone who is welcomed into the presence of the Ancient of Days and whose kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus could, if he wanted to, easily allude to this part of the book of Daniel, to this, uh, this man, this individual in heaven, by using the phrase Ba'enosh, which is Aramaic for son of man, because that part of the book of Daniel was written in Aramaic. But I think to keep the ambiguity of whether he was referring to a mere mortal or to that divine figure, it seems likely that he would have instead used the Hebrew Ben Adam for son of man. Now, with hindsight, when this question is posed, 
So did he mean a mortal man or a divine eternal runer? We know that the answer is yes and more. Because in him, the mortal and the divine are gloriously united. Now let's look at some of the promises and prophecies that are the foundation for this coming kin or Messiah. The Torah speaks about the prophet like Moses that all should heed. But it's the covenant God makes with David that sets the expectation for a king. When David had settled in Jerusalem, he spoke to Nathan the prophet about his desire to build a house for the Lord. The Lord's response can be summarized in this way. Thanks, David, for the offer of a house. But I tell you what, I'll build you a house. David wanted to build a temple as a dwelling place for the Lord in Zion. But the Lord then responded with a promise to build him a house, i.e. to create from him a royal dynasty. But the real surprise for David was the final part of the promise that was conveyed by Nathan. It goes like this. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And this is how Psalm 132 confirms this and makes this really clear and sums up the nature of this covenant. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and, and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. In other words, when God builds a house, it stays built. But this amazing promise provokes the question, how on earth can that happen since all dynasties eventually come to an end? But we know the answer because the angel Gabriel told Mary like this, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. And I love the fact that this scripture is heard around the, around the countries every Christmas. And people hear this truth that Jesus is not just the king of the world. He is the king of the house of Jacob. So the God of Israel takes his own son, born of the house of David, and puts him on the throne of David forever. 
In the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah in particular has dozens of prophecies that speak of this promised ruler, his deeds and character, but I'll only choose one. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You know, I think it's because I'm English that I really love the understatement in verse one, the bit where it says, and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The world is full of millions upon millions of people who call on the name of the Lord. Yes, this branch did bear fruit, and how? In our reading earlier, Jeremiah makes the explicit, the description king for this branch that Isaiah spoke about. This branch that comes from the house of David. Jeremiah says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. The first passage in the New Testament I'd like to look at is when Jesus appears to deny that he is a king, or at least make it obscure. The scene, and this is in John 18, is early morning on the day that he was crucified, and he is being questioned by Pilate. Pilate summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Oh, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In this situation, as you might imagine, was not the time or place for Jesus to explain to this military ruler that he, Jesus, is indeed a king, the like of which the world had never encountered. Imagine if Jesus said this to Pilate. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And just in case you're wondering, that's at least 72,000 angels. That could be a bit difficult to explain to Pilate. So sticking with the statement, my kingdom is not of this world, is probably all that Pilate could cope with. 
The next example from the New Testament is one where Jesus is able to reveal that he is indeed the Messiah. And this is a rarity. It's when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. I'm sure you remember the story. It's around noon and Jesus is hot and thirsty. He starts a conversation with the Samaritan woman by asking for a drink. He then turns the conversation onto living water and then onto the matters of her husbands. And then in response to her questions, to the issue of when and where and how God should be worshipped. Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship the spirit in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Her desire and expectation of the Messiah was very different from Jesus' Jewish audience. As we've noted, they were, among other things, looking for a God-given leader who would deliver them from the oppression of the Romans, plus their underlings, the Herodians. She, on the other hand, was all too aware that her people, the Samaritans, had long been on the receiving end of military oppression. On Mount Gerizim, in fact, that's right next to where they were standing, the Samaritan temple had been destroyed by a Jewish ruler of the Hasmonean families about 140 years before that. She knew that military might was no solution. What she wanted was a revelation of the truth that would finally bring an end to the bickering and the enmity. When Messiah comes, he will explain everything. Because of her ex expectation was so different, Jesus could say, I am he. You are speaking to him right now. And Jesus' ability to bring out the best of people, combined with her openness and honesty, meant that this rather unusual encounter turned into a mini two-day mission and a great blessing for the whole community. The next examples from the New Testament are about what Jesus taught about ruling in his kingdom and how he demonstrated it. When Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem for the last time, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, asked Jesus if they could sit on the right, his right hand and his left in glory. Jesus explained that they didn't really know what they were asking for, and besides, those positions weren't on offer. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This teaching of Jesus is a challenge to pretty much everyone who is in a position of leadership in the church because it is so radically different from how the world works. This form of leadership requires first and foremost humility, but also continual watchfulness and mutual submission by those who are working together in leadership. Now, as for the majority of us who are not involved in leadership, the scriptures are very clear how we can contribute to this. The writer to the Hebrews says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no benefit to you. Now to illustrate Jesus' compassion and authority in action, I've chosen the story of the woman caught in adultery. This is in John chapter eight. I'm sure you remember the story. This woman was brought to Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees, not because they were interested in justice, but rather to put Jesus into a corner and test him. You see, if Jesus let her off, then he could be accused of disregarding the law of Moses. But if he enforced the capital offense specified in the Torah, he would be breaking Roman law and thereby give his opponents a chance to accuse him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Usually people say that we have no idea what Jesus was writing, and that's okay. But I have a feeling that it was relevant to this situation. There are plenty of other situations where Jesus was very skilled at alluding to or hinting at scripture as a way to rebuke those who opposed him. And I wonder whether in this situation he is acting out something that hints at a rebuke. If so, he may have been writing names in the dust, just ordinary everyday names like Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judah, John. This list of five names is what scholars consider to be the five most common male names of that time. And they happen to include the name of the high priest at the time, Joseph Caiaphas. In doing this, Jesus 
in, in writing on the ground these names, Jesus was hinting at Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. This is a good one to look up and will probably be on the screen. I'll read it from the NIV. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now, Jesus' potential accusers were experts in the scriptures and they would have got the hint. They melted away one by one, starting with the older ones. So Jesus not only sidestepped their trap, but made them aware of their hypocrisy. He was effectively saying to the scribes and Pharisees that now this day is not the day of judgment and you for sure are not the judges. By Jesus' own standards, he alone was the one who was qualified to pass judgment. And for him, the day was not a day of judgment, it was a day of salvation. He wonderfully demonstrated how mercy triumphs over judgment. The final passage that shows the character of our King is when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. As you know, this is set during the Last Supper, the evening before he was condemned and crucified. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. The room had been prepared by the disciples. The water, the towel, and the bowl had been provided, but there was no servant to perform the menial duty of washing the feet of the guests. The removing of sandals and the washing of feet was a duty for the lowliest of servants, so much so that it was considered too demeaning for a Jewish slave and was expected and required only of a non-Jewish slave. The Jewish sages taught that a disciple should perform all the duties of a servant towards his master, except that of unloosing his sandals and by implication, washing his feet. So, in that room, there was no expectation that the disciples should do this service for Jesus, let alone for each other. Jesus takes this awkward situation of there not being a household servant to do the washing and makes it a powerful and dramatic illustration of his humility and the essence of his ministry. His object lesson on humility is simple, clear, and far-reaching in its implications. 
If it was not below Jesus' dignity to get down on his knees and wash his disciples' feet, then we can have no excuses and no limits. Now consider this question. If you had the unlimited power and authority, what would you do? Now my kids would sometimes ask this sort of question at the dinner table. And so we would go round, each having a go at answering, and it would be with ever-increasing flights of fancy. Now, I think mine would have been something like, oh, I'd, you know, if I had all the money and all the time, I'd go on a world cruise and take my family. But theirs were probably even more outrageous than that. But when this question is taken seriously, it can be very revealing very revealing of character, values, and ambitions. And what's interesting, we have Jesus' answer to this question in verses 3 and 4. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Literally, with all power and authority at his disposal, he undertook an act of shocking self-abasement. And he makes it very clear in verse 15 what our response should be. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In short... This scene shows the character of our King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work and the the teaching and the example of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus. But Father, you know our weakness and you know our frailty. Lord, you know how far short we fall. Help us, Lord, to walk in the ways of Jesus, the way that he taught. Enable us by your Spirit, in doing so, to bring glory to you and to your name. Amen.